Welcome to Holyrood Ungagged, the Romanian prosecution justice system of political podcasts. Season 5, episode 12, Connor got it. Season 5, episode 12, I am your host, David McClement, broadcasting from the Blantyre Free State, and joining me this evening is co-convener of SNP Socialist, co-host of Ungag's Talking Sense, and straight out of Milwaukee, it's Kat Carey. Hi Kat, good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. And introducing the third member of this evening's triumvirate, journalist, activist, Republican socialist, and Hugo Lloris lookalike, it's Connor Beaton. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. So, Kat, you were just saying how your workday turned out more interesting than you thought it was going to be? Yes, I was waiting for you to say the Lorna Slater of political podcasts, but I think we've used that one recently, hey? We might have, and I think I double-used somebody in a podcast recently, so... I don't want to be doing yeah. that again. Yeah, so uh, we're going to talk about that. So what's been going on in my life is that there was a no confidence vote in Lorna Slater today, which uh, I don't think Douglas Ross was in Scotland this morning. I don't think they were planning on it happening today. So that was interesting. Um, and happy to say the vote failed and Lorna Slater is still Scottish government minister, which is great. It's just the... The cheek of the Tories to to say it's because she did a bad job when they obviously, you know, prevented DRS from going forward on their own bad faith, technocratic, tinker, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's just uh, very interesting. Yeah, I only just heard about it not that long ago there. I think I just glanced down at my phone and saw an email um, but we spoke in the podcast fairly recently, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, about the way the Tories are really trying to make everything really personal and really kind of gone below the belt, basically, in their attacks, particularly in Lorna Slater. But I think there was also stuff about Nicholas Sturgeon just after we were speaking about it. Um, yeah, definitely seems like a, a new tactic that they're going for. How was your day, Connor? Oh, it's good. I'd had my uh, umpteenth driving lesson just a wee bit ago. So uh, if you're walking around Dundee, do take care when you're crossing the road because <laughs> I'm all over the place now. Or crossing the pavement. Yep, yep. Um, but no, besides that, it's okay. And uh, I've been following as much as I can what's been going on politically, but I just can't bring myself to actually watch Parliament because I can't, uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine having to work in there and hearing some of the most opportunistic well, so and shameless fun. politicians in Scotland every day. I enjoy watching it uh, from the TV in the office and using the mute button liberally. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have to. Um, that's the only way I can I can catch the news is in writing. I, I try and go out of my way. There's lots of times, you know, if I'm listening to the radio, a politician will come on and start speaking and I don't know who it is immediately because I don't recognise their voices because it's <laughs> it's much more bearable that way. Well, I'm going on holiday on Thursday, so nothing can dent my good mood. I'm skipping about, happy as Larry. Where are you off to, David? I'm off to Catalonia. Oh, very good. Mm -hmm. I would say it's to link up with my friends in the independence movement there, which is sort of not untrue, but it'll be mostly drinking with my friends in the independence movement. <laughs> Amazing. Um, it's my wedding anniversary today. 14 years. Happy anniversary. Married. Happy Thank anniversary. You. And your podcast? 
well, you know, when you get 14 years, it's kind of <laughs> like, uh, so we are agreeing to like make a nice dinner date at a later date. That's not midweek. Right. So that that's what we're, we're doing. Um, someone looked it up for me today. They're like, what's the 14th anniversary? I'm like, I have no idea. And apparently it's ivory. I'm like, Oh, well that's doable. <laughs> Here's a piano. Here's a yeah. Yeah. Just a wee bit of ivory. Well, it was my parents, uh, it was my parents 30th wedding anniversary yesterday. So that's Pearl apparently. Um, I didn't. I've not got the many pearls. I think it depends where you are, because I think different countries have different rules. So I don't know if it's pearl in the UK or pearl in America, or if other countries as well have their own rules. I don't know. I just assumed that was a universal thing, but I mean, I'm googling it every time. It's not like I know these. That's only how I know because I think I think I went down one of the Wikipedia rabbit holes at one stage, and I was reading about that. Um, it's my 12th anniversary next month. I don't think even in two years my wife will be happy if I make plans for... I'll just... Yes, Caroline, I'll just podcast in the night of anniversary. That would go down very, very well. I mean, we did have a discussion before today about it and agreed on it. So, um, like, I think I told you guys last week, um, Eli is doing his transition to high school from P7, so... It's a busy week. It's not a normal week. So we just decided we were both in the Navy. So we spent a lot of holidays and birthdays apart or at a weird spot or working. So we just, you know, assign a day. This is going to be the day we celebrate. Fun facts about anniversaries. My friend that I'm actually going to Catalonia with on Thursday, both my parents and his parents were married in the same day. Not just, not just in the same day of the year, the actual same day. In 1978. The same day of the Scotland Peru game. That's another one. <laughs> That's probably why he remembers it. Might, might be. <laughs> uh, also, turned out we were also born within four days of each other, which then leads to another theory that I don't think any of us want to really think about too much. <laughs> That's even closer than you and me, David. Two months apart, I think. Are you January? Yeah, I'm January. I'm November, so. So you're older than me then? I am. I'll just put that in there. <laughs> anyway, let's get ungagged. Okay, first item in the agenda. The long-anticipated report by MPs into whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament over COVID lockdown parties is finally out. They ruled that he deliberately misled the House of Commons by repeatedly telling it, after the Partygate scandal emerged, that COVID rules had been followed at all times in Downing Street. The report also found he deliberately misled MPs on the Privilege Committee while they were investigating them. The report also accused the former Prime Minister of impugning the committee in his criticism of it and being complicit in a campaign of abuse against its members. The report recommended he be suspended for Parliament for more than 10 days, which would have then triggered a recall by-election had he not resigned. So we spoke about this a wee bit when he resigned. Obviously, the full report's out now. And who'd like to go first? Has anyone read the report? I read the highlights of the report. Yeah, same. I can't bring myself to read through the full thing. It doesn't really tell us anything we could have guessed. Yes, that came out recently. Um, 
strangely convenient that I just came out now. Um, so mm. I think somebody's clearly been sitting in that video of people dancing and partying and was it in down the street or another government office. Um, yeah, very suspicious the timing of that. It's, it's the unfortunate thing now that it's become, it's been so long that we've been talking about this and it's combined with, I think, the fact that a lot of people, a lot of people do feel like they want to move on from all the trauma and stress of COVID and not think about it anymore and like and that's mixed up with the rage that people feel about how it was handled but it's just this thing now of like I see Boris Johnson party gate on the news and it's just like a deep sigh of you know this is still going on this is still being talked about and uh, I think that was deliberate you know by the Tories that you know they they do bad things and then they try and move things along so we can forget about it. So it feels like it's old news and it feels like it's pointless to talk about it. Um, and in one way, like the, the good thing about this is Boris Johnson's career is finally decisively over. And that does feel good. Um, but it's come so late that it's like there's not even like this feeling of catharsis with it. It's just kind of a feeling of shrug and that's it. There closes that chapter of British history. I don't know. Is that how you feel about it? You think his career is definitely over? Well, his, his, his formal political parliamentary career, I can't see him going back into Westminster or uh, becoming mayor of London again. You know, I'm sure he'll carry on having a column and giving speeches to people, but I don't know. I think every, like, he was definitely talking up the idea that he could be prime minister again. I think that's finally over. There are some people... On you there are some people who are like, well, he can just go to a safer seat and get selected. I was like, you know, do you think that this guy is that much magic that he can just go anywhere and poof, it's yeah. done? Um, so the the video, sorry, Aniko, David, if you have a comment on that. I mean, I don't know about the importance of the Tory party, but I'm sure he could find on a local level uh, activists that would be willing to put him in. Um, whether whether we could, they could do a Labour Party and just like step in and block whoever they like, uh, I don't even know if that's you know within uh, the rules of the Tory Party. If it was, I'm not convinced Sunak would actually would actually have the guts to do anything as blatant as that. Um, so I, w- I I wouldn't rule out that he would go to back to somewhere like Henley and uh, charm the local activists who would stick him back in and. If the Tory party has as atrocious an election as all the party or the opinion polls up until recently have been indicating, I could see the Tories turning to him again in their desperation. You know, at the moment it seems unlikely, but I don't think we can rule anything out as the last few years in politics have, have shown us. Yeah. So I'm just kind of looking more at this video because I'm not going to read the report. Uh because I don't hate myself that much. <laughs> um, so it was in a conservative campaign headquarters basement. So it wasn't even in Downing Street. There wasn't really that kind of excuse. Um, one of the people in it, Ben Mallet, was given an OBE in his last honors list. So, you know, and he's currently running the Tory candidates mayor of London campaign. Um there's a couple of people who are now in like elevated to the House of Lords in that video. It's gross. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I mean, I can't stand conspiracy theories. And one of the, one of the things that is always a criticism of conspiracy theories is, like, if the moon landings aren't real, how did they manage to keep, you know, so many people were involved in it quiet? Somebody was spoke mm-hmm. up. If you look at what was going on in Downing Street, like, multiple times a week, they were emailing out, like, uh, invitations to parties to, uh, to, like, the fact that it, it took so long to come out has made me think, well, who knows, if NASA's get more discipline than the Tory party, maybe they could keep the moon landing thing under wraps. Nah, because it still came out. Yeah, and I mean, also, like, I think, I think what's come clear with the way that things have been coming out is that a lot of people in the Westminster kind of media bubble, like a lot of journalists who were chummy with politicians and political aides, they all knew about it. Um, I think I think like there was a whole I can't remember when the first Partygate story broke. I'm sure the journalist who broke it actually said that she'd been sitting on it for such a long time. And I mean, there's a to the degree you're trying to substantiate it and you're trying to make sure you don't get sued and all these other things. But there comes to a point where like. People do use political secrets as currency of a kind, and I'm not surprised that some of it's taking a long time to come out. But it's all about like maintaining friendships and maintaining loyalty that they wouldn't get if they just spilled everything that they they find out. Which is, you know, probably not the case with the moon landing because there's probably a bit of, you know, the moon landing is such a big thing. <laughs> you know, there's more advantage, more advantage in showing that you, the moon landing was a hoax than in uh, protecting your political friends. Um, and that's just a sad nature of British, pol- British political reporting, you know. How much is NASA There's... awful, Connell? <laughs> hey, it was me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no money in faking the moon landing, is there? You know? Just to make it clear, I'm not, I'm not arguing that the moon landing was a, a hoax. <laughs> it's just a joke. Just a wee joke. Calm down, everybody. I mean, I did hear when I moved to Scotland, I was surprised how many people thought 9-11 was an inside job. And I was like, wow, like I was in the military. I was, you know, brand new in boot camp or just out of boot camp when it happened. But like, there ain't no way <laughs> military people talk because there's no, you know, there's so no money it. in it. You did it, Kat. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. 19 year old me <laughs> orchestrated it. You said it yourself, you were out of boot camp. <laughs> I was. I was in, I was actually in a like a test. I was doing aviation electrician school. I was learning how to test uh fuel cell like capacitors where you med- measure the thing. So it actually like happened and was going for a while before I even knew about it, which was that sounds cool. like you were trying to figure out how to melt steel with jet fuel. <laughs> Well, sure. I barely remember 9 11 because uh, I'm the young one here. Oh, so. Shut up, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> what, what age would you have been, Connor? Uh, I was five. <laughs> I wasn't a, was a piss up to Dublin when it happened. I was old enough to <laughs> drink at least. You were 19, I'm guessing. <laughs> like me. Yes, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I remember. I remember it because I remember it being explained to me that the uh, you know planes were flown into these buildings, and I apparently haplessly asked my parents, uh, "How did they get out of the plane, though?" So I didn't quite crack. <laughs> and then, Aww. then when the movie World Trade Center came out, I was in the cinema and I had completely forgotten about nine eleven, and I loudly said, "World Trade Center? That's such a boring sounding movie." Um, and I got my parents telling me off for that because they were quite embarrassed. Oh dear lord. <laughs> ah. 
Well, I'm glad it didn't affect everyone's life as much as it affected mine. <laughs> I suppose. Well, um, I did. I did. Like I said, I was in Dublin on a piss up, so I had to go on a plane in September 12th, which was a wee bit tense. Oh boy. Oh yeah. I do know, like the year after, so September 11th, 2002, I was flying a rabbi and a priest around the Middle East, which I thought. Well, that's a weird joke, and this would be a very <laughs> tragic story if things go wrong. <laughs> I, but they joked uh, about it with me, so. Good. Oh. <laughs> One of the things I did uh, read in the report that two of the committee MPs, um, SNPs, Alan Dorans and Labour's Avon Fovargue, I should have maybe tried to pronounce that before I wrote it down, um, they wanted to expel um, Boris Johnson for the House of Commons but they get outvoted. It's very rare. Um, I, I didn't actually think that could happen. I thought that was a whole argument that, that needed recall petitions. So I don't know what the specific requirements must be, um, but it's only happened three times in the last century. I thought that he was um, not going to get a pass to ever go back on the grounds, or is that what you're talking about? No, but being actually expelled as an MP, which I didn't think there was a mechanism for doing that, but seemingly there is some archaic one that uh, they have used three times, so most recently in 1954. So what were those cases? Why why would you get expelled from Parliament? Well, the first one by, uh, was the magnificently named Horatio Bottomley, <laughs> who was expelled after being convicted of fraud. And um, actually reading about this guy, it just sounds like... Boris Johnson. He was a kind of flamboyant sort of populist figure that um, had a dodgy sort of relationship with the truth and was has some dodgy finances and it, he got away with it for a long time and it, I think he almost got expelled before and got away with it and it came back and bit him later on um, and then he died in poverty so we can maybe hope that Boris follows that tra- trajectory. I mean it um, sounds like he is a very Tory politician. Horatio Bottomley. Then there was Peter Baker who expelled after getting convicted of forgery in 1954. I think it was some kind of um, like forging legal documents or some kind. And I think the last one, 1947, was a Labour politician, Gary Allen. And he, again, this sounds like a biz- it was a bizarre sort of story. He said that all the MPs sell stories to the media. And so it caused a big investigation by the House of Commons. And they returned and found that the only evidence of one an MP selling stories to the media was him. <laughs> so he then got kicked out of Parliament for that. Nice and petard. I mean, the fact That's... that he resigned made it a bit kind of immaterial, I suppose. So it's just interesting that they have a whole process for expulsion but they don't actually have a formal process for resigning and you still have to do that archaic thing of being appointed by the crown to a position yeah i only found out about that recently yeah westminster never surprises you in the terms of how utterly ridiculous it is it became a big issue when when jerry adams resigned from westminster having not taken up his seat because he didn't want to swear an oath to the crown uh, he sent a letter of resignation to the house of commons office or whatever it was and uh, the government announced that he has accepted the post of such and such and such and is no longer an MP and he did this whole thing of saying I never accepted that, I never accepted this nominal 
uh, position under the crown. Um, yeah, that w- that would be a problem for Jerry Adams. <laughs> yeah. Which is even, like funny because even as like, a formality, it would be a problem. Yeah, so he he maintains he never accepted it, and yet they recognised him as you know. I guess you don't have to accept. It. I guess if the crown says you've got this position, you've got it. It sounds like a very interesting proposition for the next uh, Hollywood swearing in. <laughs> but again, though, it makes me wonder why they needed this whole new process for recall petitions if there was a process for expelling people. Well, um, it was it was just part of that Lib Dem Tory deal where everything kind of got messed up, right? Like they wanted proportional representation and they were like, what about alternative vote? And they were like, we want a recall system whereby, you know, discontented constituents can recall their MP and they said, well, what if um, if someone got suspended for a bit of time, you could have a little petition. I think, I think like everything, all the constitutional reforms from that period, the other one is like the Fixed Term Parliaments Act that they just like decided, to get, inconvenient. <laughs> decided to get rid of at any point. Um, none of that really made sense. And somehow, <laughs> for some reason, the Lib Dems were still convinced that that was worthwhile for them. But the Lib Dems kind of pushed that because it was uh, a lot of anger over the expenses scandal where basically the public were told oh, there's nothing that can be done about it. Hmm. Well, it turns out there was stuff that could be done about it. So shock horror where they just blatantly lying and hoping nobody would check and apparently no, nobody in the media did because partly this was obviously was quite unknown because when I looked it up to try and get more information on the three guys I just said, the main source I got was a Guardian article that had had to uh, correct itself because I originally said there was five people expelled and it turned out two of them weren't expelled in the fashion that they were talking about. No, sorry, three of them weren't and then there was another guy that they didn't know about. So even the Guardian with their resources couldn't really uh, had trouble digging up the correct information. This is just another reason for independence, guys. What do you think? <laughs> Absolutely. Or well, maybe even kind of a written constitution that could say how things are meant to work. You know, it, be- it beat me to it. Like a split second. <laughs> and that's also the thing today with with the no confidence vote. Right? Um, they they were only saying that she failed to deliver because the Tories were hampering it from being delivered. And then they're trying to use all these technocratic little little things where they're destroying democracy in the Scottish Parliament because it runs on norms. The whole UK runs on norms without a, a written constitution. So, you know, written constitutions are imperfect. Look at the US Constitution. There's great things about it. There's horrible things about it, but it's there. And, you know, when it's time to rip it up and start again, then that can happen. That can't happen with an imaginary, archaic, whatever the fuck we have here. I mean, in, in practice, the Scotland Act is basically like the devolved constitution of scotland and you can see how how useful that is that every single time there's a, a battle over you know who's the right to do what there's this one thing that they check and they decide what does that say um and there's like so many things that are interesting about you know the, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty not really extending to scotland um and if like the the uk is part of um the european convention on human rights if you go to the supreme court and challenge a law that was passed in Westminster on the basis that it's breaching human rights standards, all that court can say is, we think this should be changed, and then the onus is on Parliament to change it. If the Scottish Parliament passes uh, a law that breaks the European Convention, 
the, the Supreme Court can just strike it down because it's in the Scotland Act that you can just strike that down. Um, seems like a reasonable thing for a country to have that maybe judges should be allowed to override human rights breaches. Um, the UK doesn't work that way. The UK doesn't work at all. <laughs> <laughs> if only there was a European court that could um, maybe do something <laughs> like that. Oh no, they don't like that either, do they? No, they don't like them because they stopped flights to Rwanda. There was something else I was going to say there, and it's went right out my head. You're you're welcome, David. <laughs> um, yeah, just about the again about this the Partygate report. It's the fact that it really told us nothing. Like you could have a year ago asked somebody in the street, and they'd have been able to tell you that Boris was Johnson was telling lies, and a lot of lies, and has told lies about the lies. And yet it's taking all this time and by the time it comes around it's it's you know fairly pointless because he's already jumped ship. Mm. And whether he decides to, that he wants back in, he's only got a matter of months possibly to the next general election where he could jump back in again. And I don't know what the rules are. Would any suspension carry over or would that just be a, a blank slate? No idea. But I do <laughs> think that these archaic rules and these intricate procedures have a way of making people apathetic, right? Because we all knew that Boris lied. A lot of voters in England, a lot of Tory voters, a lot of you know people who wanted him gone. Um, but there's, it's like, well, let's look back into the history until 1300, where this rule was normalized and whatnot. We also have to have our gold carriage going through. So it's like the. Classic. I don't know if Tony Blair invented it or just popularised it, but that whole thing of any scandal and they immediately go, well, we need to, let's have an inquiry about this. Let's have an inquiry to tell us what we already know, that everybody knows, and once you set the inquiry up, nobody can talk about it because you can't do that when there's an inquiry ongoing. And then so nobody talks about it for months, and then when the, the, the inquiry delivers, nobody really cares, and the inquiry probably doesn't say what everybody knows because the terms have been set up so narrow that they only can report in one wee aspect of it. Thanks, Tony. Well, it's the thing. The COVID inquiry is going on right now, um, and I've barely seen any coverage of what the content of that is. It's not really part of political discourse. I don't know even when it's meant to complete its report. I assume there's quite a while yet to go, um, and I somehow get the feeling that it's probably going to be you know, buried by the time that it's out there. And it'll be of interest to like epidemiologists and stuff like that. And then nobody will actually, you know, suffer any political consequences from it. Yeah, it could I be mean, halfway, through, halfway through a Starmore government and they kind of can just wash their hands out. Think about Chilcot. Think about the Iraq war inquiry. Like that took like a decade and then it was just like this drop of water in the ocean and it was forgotten about within weeks. Let's move on to the next um, item in the agenda. On that cheerful note. <laughs> the cheerful ones at the end, we try, because I have a habit of depressing everybody. <laughs> Labour will end new North Sea oil and gas exploration, but help communities profit from clean power projects, Sir Keir Salmer pledged. Speaking in Edinburgh, the Labour leader vowed to cut bills, create jobs and provide energy security. He also said that a previously announced publicly owned green energy company would be based in Scotland. Kat, yes. excited, excited for these big Labour promises? 
I mean, has labor made a promise they haven't you turned on in, in recent memory? I mean, as far as an energy company based in Scotland, I, I don't like that. Like, stay in your area, stay in your lane. If it, it's in Scotland, maybe Scottish labor should announce it. But, you know, that's not, Scottish labor doesn't get the, get the pull. Um, I, I feel like that would be used to keep us in the union and we want to nationalize our energy grid anyways. Um, so I don't, I don't care. I don't believe them. Um, people inside the Labour Party want to drill more oil. They don't want money earmarked for green projects, even though green projects are the most bang for the buck, so to speak. And everybody that's not inside the Labour Party or lobbying on behalf of oil and gas think it's too cautious. So it pleases no one, which is just textbook labor. Colonel? Yeah, it's so interesting seeing there's been such a kind of a mudslinging between Labour and the SNP over the last few weeks on energy and over North Sea oil and gas. And it's like two, it's like the thing of like two bald men fighting over a comb. I mean, Labour is saying, oh, we're going to end North Sea oil and gas extraction. Um, but then they've had to roll back and say, well, we're not seeing a cliff edge. Anna Sarwar was launching their energy policy saying there's going to be oil and gas extraction in Scotland for decades to come. And we, we literally cannot afford to have uh, a policy of maximum extraction from North Sea uh, for decades to come, or there won't be a planet left for us to be you know, fighting over. Um, and what Starmer has said about uh, you know, Rosebank, which is going to come up and probably be approved soon, is that he wouldn't unapprove it once he gets in. So he's basically saying, okay, if, you, if the Tories and all their oil and gas chums approve as many oil fields as possible over the last kind of year and a half that they've got in power, um, he won't touch that and they can all rest easy knowing that they'll manage to get all those profits out. So the whole thing is just, you know, it's posturing and it's that thing of like Labour saying, well, we're left to the SNP on this and the SNP saying, well, actually, we're more in line with the unions because the unions, you know, are caring about jobs first. But it's just, you know, none of it really relates to the reality of what we need to do in order to transition away from oil and gas in Scotland. Um, and yeah, we need a much bigger conversation about that. Yeah, just to give the listeners a peek behind the curtain, I didn't even want to talk about this. I mean, <laughs> why should why should anybody believe anything that Labour says, particularly if it's on the face of it, it's sort of progressive? Because yeah. they have made a point of going out their way to bin any sort of progressive pledge or promise that Keir Starmer made or um, any policy that they previously had in place and this will this will just go the same way as every other or their other promises and um, once they're in power it will last one conversation with an oil executive and suddenly all the nice green uh, things that they were saying will, will just be forgotten about and you know the likes of Mandelson will be sitting in Starmer's shoulders saying that no no it's it's good if the greens and the uh, the, uh, the lefties are criticising you that's just going to get us more votes Um just go further, go further. You know, it's it's absolute. I don't know what it is, but I'm not happy about it. And like I said, didn't even want to talk about it. Well, my friend Owen, I just want to flag up. Um, he was the Labour candidate in Dundee City East in the last Scottish Parliament elections, and he left the party last year. 
Um, and he's written quite a long piece that goes into a whole bunch of the reasons why that is, including like the transphobia and racism under Starmer. Um, but one of them is the climate policy and the fact that from the very moment they announced this big £28 billion per year borrowing target, um, they immediately started finding caveats and winding it back. And, uh, you know, he, he sent me a draft of his article where he was focusing on this. And then before we were able to publish it on Heckle, where it eventually appeared, um, it, it got formally announced that they weren't going to commit to borrowing all this money. So it's like, it's not like any of this has been a surprise or a U-turn. Um, you know, if you're paying attention, you can see that these things are just like built on sand and not actually committing to anything. Um, and yet Owen's got a piece coming out in the National sometime in the next couple of days that focuses specifically on labour and energy policy. So if, pe- if even people who are within the Labour Party and the Labour movement can see that process happening, then I think we should be paying attention. So I encourage people, I'm sure by the time this podcast comes out, um, his article will be in the National. So I encourage people to go and read it. What's his surname? It's Owen Wright. Interesting. I should, have, I should have said that, not just my friend Owen. <laughs> you know. <laughs> really familiar, you know. I mean, it's the National. I don't know how many Labour supporters read it, but I, I think we could not narrow down <laughs> who your friend Owen is based <laughs> on the article. I, I find it really interesting because in a way, with respect to Dundee being technically in the Northeast region, but not being spiritually maybe in the Northeast, yeah, the way I've never described it as part of the Northeast of Scotland. I mean, it is electorally and, you know, for my job, it's part of the Northeast, but uh, very different vibe. Um, Labour doesn't do well in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire or Angus. I don't think they do well either, but definitely the the heavy oil and gas. So why not write off those votes, right? Why not write off those votes? But even still, they're rolling back on on their pledges. And yeah, we, we do need to continue to as- extract some oil while we get the energy grid up that's just a necessity we're not burning coal that's good you know um but it it really the the language used is not it doesn't send a sense of comfort especially while scotland's on fire like it has scotland's been on fire for Mm -hmm. ages uh i do a lot of work with the firefighters the fire brigades union and they're not in a good place right now I just, um, the discussion at Dundee in the Northeast, that just reminded me, I think, of a drunken conversation I had with you, Connor, in Belfast, where you were explaining to me why it was a travesty that Dundee is lumped into the Northeast region. <laughs> and because so many of the Northeast list politicians are ba- at that time were based in Aberdeen, yeah. they said it was an injustice because Aberdeen were overrepresented, Dundee was underrepresented in Parliament. So, yeah. That, that's, that's changed quite- a bit, yeah. That has changed actually. Well, Dundee in general has become more of a political powerhouse, I think. You know, I think in a previous podcast, I might have remarked on how many S- senior SP politicians are now Dundonians. Um, I mean, I guess technically Hamza Youssef and uh, Nadia now live in Butte House, but before that, they were living in Broughty Ferry. Stephen Flynn, the Westminster leader, he's from Dundee. His dad's a Dundee councillor. Um, I'm sure there was someone else. Shona Robinson is the DFM. Shona Robinson's the Deputy First Minister. There you go. Um, and yeah, I guess now the case is that a lot of the list politicians are Dundee-based. So uh, Maggie Chapman, Mercedes Vialba, Michael Mara. Um, I think that's just like Aberdeen is just on a downwards trajectory in many respects. But it was always it's weird. All to the me Tories. That, yeah, it was always weird to me that. Um, I mean, 
firstly, Dundee culturally, you wouldn't really refer to it as part of the northeast of Scotland. I don't, I don't think anyone would say that. I think like Tayside is kind of its own kind of thing. Um, and I would have said Tayside should be an electoral region, you know, just put us in with Perth. But it was always so weird putting in Dundee and Aberdeen because they were kind of like polar opposite cities and so many different markers. Um, I mean, it's less the case now, but then at least, you know, Aberdeen had the lowest unemployment rate in Scotland and Dundee had the highest. Aberdeen had the highest rents in Scotland and Dundee had among the lowest. Um, I mean, so much of that has changed because of changes in the oil and gas sector, but... Oh, surely that means they balanced each other out. <laughs> Which meant the northeast would have been average. The yin yeah. and yang. Uh, no no shade to Aberdeen, but I love Dundee. I, I, I don't work out of there often, but I always like it. It's not even always sunny yes. when I'm there. It's been cloudy the last few times, but I do. I just, I, if I didn't live in Edinburgh, I'd live in Dundee if I had a choice. Sorry, Glasgow. You're just, you're not even... <laughs> I don't know if we'll you're top three. We'll, even. We won't take it personally. <laughs> I like Dundee as well. I've been there a f- quite a few times. Always liked it. Um, I recently did visit Aberdeen for the first time, and it was nicer than expected. I don't know. Mm. I don't know what I expected, but I kind of maybe it's all these phrases like the Granite City. I just expected it to be very depressing looking, but it was quite nice. But was it very? Did you, it strike you as very granite heavy? I thought so. Yeah, but I, I thought it was nicer than I expected it to be. Because I always thought people were exaggerating when they said, oh, it's Granite City and stuff. The first time I was there, I was really struck by it. Yeah, because every building just has this unique, different look. I think it's cool. I don't I don't know. I haven't spent a ton of time, time in Aberdeen, but the vibe reminds me of the vibe back home uh, where I grew up in, in a way that of the reasons why I wanted to leave, maybe. No offense. There's just it's just an attitude about being like a, a the town in a in a rural area maybe i don't know i was going to say even at having the tagline the, like the granite city sounds like you know driving up to an american city and they've got the little sign or it'd be like the windy state or something i feel like we don't really have uh, epithets like that for most places in scotland well dundee's a city of discovery it's actually no longer the city of discovery they changed it which i thought was really stupid it's now many one city many discoveries yeah, that's that's not an improvement. Which it's not thinking... it doesn't have a double meaning anymore because there's only one actual discovery. Yeah. True. I mean, I always think of Dundee as like the sunshine city and the yes city. Yes. So that yeah, is we'll take that. That's my well, interpretation. Have always been trying to take yes city from us, and it's wrong. Who's trying to take it? Glaswegians. All right. I mean, I'm, I love I'm Glasgow. I have so many friends from Glasgow, but man, they hate it when any other place gets any sort of props in it. It's part of the charm, I think. I don't know. I have a complicated um, relationship with Glasgow because after the reorganization of council boundaries when I was like a teenager, I I grew up thinking I was a Glaswegian until Glasgow left me. So I try, I try not to take it personally, but it's still they, they redrew the borders around you. Yes, <laughs> still like that guy. He's out. <laughs> Suddenly, I was living in Lanarkshire, and I didn't know what to do with that. So, although as I still always point out, I bizarrely am still in the Glasgow voting region, despite the fact that I'm way out in Blantyre, which is mm. miles into Lanarkshire. It's at least three towns into Lanarkshire. 
and at the end of my street is the boundary before it becomes central Scotland. So the windows of the Scottish Parliament elections systems. Don't even get me started on the new UK proposed boundaries because I just think they're ridiculous, all of them. There's new Scot Scottish constituency for Holyrood. There's new boundaries and it's very interesting in Edinburgh, but I haven't looked closer at the other ones. Dundee is just the same, I'm pretty sure, so I can't complain. Actually, you know what? I think I am complaining about something. I think North East Fife... <laughs> I, I knew I could find something. I think they're renamed <laughs> North East Fife to Fife North East because the other oh, ones no. are like Glasgow East, Glasgow South, etc. But the thing is, there's no other constituency that's called Fife and has a cardinal direction. Northeast Fife is the only one. And it's a region that everyone would call Northeast Fife. You know, it's not exactly like there's another name for it. And uh, yeah, so they're going to call it Fife Northeast. Well, I know that the Kelvin constituency is a mess. It's now Kelvin and something else, and it goes across the river. Like, I can understand the politicians representing it are like, what do I do? You know, I think Edinburgh Central and Edinburgh Southern are very different, and it's it's interesting. Well, I mean, I'm in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, which in the next constituency is like Hamilton East and something. But it's like Hamilton's like in the some like the seventh biggest um, settlement in Scotland, and it's like been cut in half, like right down the middle. So it's a kind of afterthought in both constituencies. Is that for the UK? Yeah. Boundaries? Do you know what the Scottish part of it ones? I've not heard much about the boundaries moving around right a bit here for that, so I'm assuming there's no big changes. Or I've probably heard something. You know what they say about assuming, David. I'm very glad we turned this conversation into constituency talk. <laughs> we just stopped talking about labor. Like, like I'm I always so sick wanted. Of it. Yeah, yeah. Rachel Reeves sucks so hard. Like, I can't. Oh, she's the worst. Anyway. Yeah, she's. It's like you can't imagine her smiling or laughing. She just looks miserable. She's like the Tory version of Theresa May to me. She hates immigrants, right? Uh, at least Theresa May can dance. Can you imagine? I'm not Rachel giving dancing. Come on, it's can you can you picture it even? Can you? And now a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures, from snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles. Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one -one group sessions educational encounters for children of all ages and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do and if appropriate a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Holyrood Unguide 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature you can do so by email on sense.of.nature inquiries at outlook.com you can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for sense of nature scotland's first minister hamza yusuf has announced proposals for a written constitution for an independent scotland the plan is set out in a paper called creating a modern constitution for an independent scotland mr yusuf said the constitution would put power in the hands of the people cat you wanted to talk about this didn't you I did, but I, I kind of feel like this is really 
Connor's okay, reason Connor. for living. On you go, Connor. <laughs> um, okay, well, I think it's good. Uh, the, pay, the, the way, reason for living is a bit strong. <laughs> this is Connor's um, favorite thing to talk about. I do, I do love talking about the Constitution. I, I will say, I, I'm, the timing of this particular paper coming out, I think, was a bit. Uh, not necessarily bad, but you know, at a time when you know Labour's talking about energy, the fact that we're now talking about the con- like the Constitution in such an abstract term of like when we get independence, we're going to do this. It's a little unfortunate. So I kind of wish that we were having this discussion in a better, you know, environment where we could actually because it is really important, um, and it's one of the things that I think doesn't get enough attention in the independence movement is you know how are we actually going to get from voting yes in a referendum to having a permanent constitution in independent state um and i really don't think we can leave that till afterwards you know because there's gonna be such a urgency we need to start having those conversations now so i wish i wish we had this particular launch in uh you know less of a you know political politically confusing time when there's so much else going on but well, what, i think 2015 <laughs> <laughs> yeah if only um but I think, but I think it makes some really important points. So, firstly, I think we've already touched on earlier in this podcast why a written constitution is so important, in that it actually sets out what are the powers of government, what are the mechanisms by which politicians are held to account. This is this is the power they're allowed to exercise, and on who whose behalf are they exercising it? Um, and there've been some really good, important uh, illustrations of this in the last few years. I mean, the UK Constitution. Um, I mean, people say the UK doesn't have a constitution. It does. It's just that you can't, if you're not a constitutional law professor that has been at university all your life, then you're not going to be able to understand, parse and explain it to anyone Um, because it's just such a fudge of different pieces of legislation and common law and uh, what's that word? Convention um, that you have to apply. I think constitutional Um, arrangement's a great way to put it when they say that. It's uh, and we've seen that with uh, with Brexit. So Brexit had such a um, was such a strain on the British Constitution, and the probably the peak of that was the prorogation crisis, where Boris Johnson had the powers of the executive because he was Prime Minister, but he knew that he was unlikely to have a majority in Parliament to get through his plan. And there was the Brexit cliff edge where it was going to happen if Parliament didn't intervene, um, and he used. His power, uh, he advised the Queen to just shut down Parliament and try and avoid that. Um, and now in that particular case, you know, it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, which is a very new institution, you know, unlike, um, you know, America's had a Supreme Court for a long time. Tony Blair invented the British Supreme Court. Before that, it was a committee of lords. It's just like, it's so ridiculous um, to talk about. Uh, and in this case, the Supreme Court intervened. And said no you can't do that and parliament was reinstated but the fact that there's not actually a clear written constitution in the uk that says this is the power of the prime minister to you know prorogue parliament these are the, the conditions in which he's allowed to do it um you know it's it's kind of luck that uh, it happened to be that we had judges in that particular case who were uh willing to step in we can't actually guarantee that will always be the case you know i was at a talk that lady hale who was president of the supreme court at the time gave where she said like they're really nervous about getting involved in politics because they're worried um there's a wider attack on the on on the judiciary and on the um 
on the legal profession generally. You know, we've seen constantly Tory prime ministers having a go at uh, lefty lawyers who are abusing human rights rules to keep migrants in and all this kind of stuff. And they're really talking about watering down all these powers of judicial review, etc. So we can't always count on the fact that in one particular case, the Supreme Court might be willing to step in and prevent something. We actually really do need to have a document that says this is the power that the state has and this is the situation in which you get to exercise it. Um, one thing I want to say about the paper that the Scottish government put out um, is in the white paper in 2014, it always said we'll have an interim constitution and then we're going to need to have some sort of a process, some sort of a constitutional convention um, that will develop the permanent one. And you get a little bit more detail um, in this of like how that could actually look. So it mentions things like the climate assembly that happened um, and some of the other kind of citizens assemblies that have taken place in Scotland. Um, I think it's really interesting to put an idea out there. Uh, I'm not sure that I would be willing to say that I fully agree with the model that they've put of, you know, it's a random jury of people who are selected and they're assisted by law professors. Um, other countries, you know, uh, Chile, for example, recently, they've had countries where constitutional conventions have actually been elected. Um, I think that's a model that's interesting. Um, and I also remember that Commonweal a few years ago put out a paper proposing a pretty participatory process, whereas you'd actually go around and set up assemblies in different towns and cities and people could go and have input there. Um, I think those are all really good models. For me, the most important thing is like we do need to make sure that people get to participate in that process. It can't just be a, a fait accompli. Um, and the really positive thing, I think, about making that clear is if there's a referendum and yes wins by a whisker, we do actually need to engage unionists, people who voted no, in terms of what the future Scottish state is going to look like. It can't be just people who voted yes that get to decide it. And it is actually probably a really important thing to make clear that it's not going to be, we're going to, you, we're going to win and we're going to call all the shots. We actually do need to involve people who were against independence in deciding what independence is going to look like if we're going to make that work beyond you know, just a permanent <laughs> political chaos. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's not been emphasized enough. Like the process of writing a constitution should be something that's inclusive, that involves as many people as possible. And it's hopefully something that can actually build a stronger political consensus for independence after we vote for it. I think it's important as well, like that we do have that clear process because there's always a danger that a UK government will, the day after a yes vote, their first, that'll be their first day where they start trying to subvert it. And if we don't know what we're doing next and it becomes kind of chaotic, I think it, it leads an opportunity there for, you know, for it to drag on for years and years and years and we could be 10 years after a yes vote and still actually know have delivered a, um, a, an independent Scotland. So I, I have a couple thoughts about what you said, Connor. I, I kind of disagree with the timing thing. I think that this, you know, planned release of all these documents started with Nicholas Sturgeon, and this is the continuity of the continuity candidate of like fulfilling promises that the government's made. Um, I was more excited by this one than all the other ones. Um, uh, but I do think what you said about the rhetoric, so talking about working together and what it'll be like and including that is that that conversation change there's just these little little things where we're at a stalemate right now we're not sure where to go there are little things to be looking forward to 
there's things to be giving people to do so they don't just sit on Twitter day drinking and abusing people. Uh, <laughs> fun fact, I have a lot of accounts muted and I can't see it. So, you know, fire away. Um, but uh, I think it's super important. I mean, we've spoken about this before on Talking Sense about how important it is to be inclusive of everyone of all opinions. Please, God, not too many Tories because they'll ruin it. But, you know, they have to have a seat at the table. And I hope that everyone who is chosen or who wants to is able to. But I do think they should. It shouldn't be an election, in my opinion, because I think people who are less engaged will have refreshing new ideas and different perspectives that are usually presented. And I think that's quite important. Um I really like the fact that there are there's a framework to the Constitution, not just the interim and permanent, uh, that kind of mechanism, but the whole nuclear disarmament piece. The whole, look, we're going to start as a constitutional monarchy. That's just the way it is. And then we're going to move into a, a different head of state arrangement or exploring it. Um, and then talking, they also talked about they, the paper talked about a human rights framework and, you know, this is, we're going to set human rights and codify them into our constitution. So all things, which I was very happy to see. Um, I wonder how, if it would have been different if Nicola would have still been first minister, if there would have been anything different with it. Cause I think she's a more careful politics. I don't mean this in a bad way towards either of them, but I thought she was more cautious than Hamza. I think he kind of goes around and he's just a nice friendly guy and kind of makes friends everywhere he goes. And it, it's kind of getting across already on the international stage. Talked about it last week with Iona Fife on Talking Sense or, or yesterday, depending on when the podcast was released. Um, I think there's a lot of goodwill. And I think that he's I don't know if radical is the term I'd use for a government or the S&P really as a, as an entity, but I think that it it's brave and visionary in a way that I don't see most lawyers behaving. No offense to lawyers. I should be careful there because I work with a lot of lawyers. <laughs> just, yeah, I know. mean, it, for me, the timing was a surprise just because I don't know if this just rumbling away and I wasn't paying attention, but it took me totally by surprise. Like, um, I, I, I didn't see it coming, but, you know, I kind of joked when you said it, Connor. but I think if we're looking for a more stable political time to do this, I think we could be waiting a while because genuinely I can't remember the last time that was the case. Um, I, I, particularly since Brexit, it just feels like politics has been chaotic and it feels like it's got to continue that way. I mean, literally, the Tories could table a no confidence vote in a different minister every week. There's no time limit. So, great. And that's just say, inside Scottish Parliament. Well, I was going to say about the, you know, you were talking about, like, apparently the current constitutional setup in the UK involves a lot of convention. And having a Prime Minister like Boris Johnson or a, a President Trump, it shows the danger of that because it actually has no weight to it. Like, if you get somebody who's just willing to defy the convention and ignore all the sort of horrified shouts of, but this is how we've always done it, you know, that means nothing to a kind of potential demagogue like um, a Trump or a Johnson. That's, in one sense, I think Johnson might have been more dangerous than 
Trump because there, there wasn't the same constitutional straitjacket that to contain him. Um, Johnson literally, theoretically, could have done anything in a lot of ways. And I suppose we're lucky he's no prime minister anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, like the, the whole thing with January 6th, that would have been a success under UK rules and laws because Mike Pence would have done whatever was the easiest for his party um, and to protect the peace, I'm sure, is the way he'd phrase it, if there wasn't an actual rule and law against it. So it's hard to imagine Boris Johnson respecting any rules or laws, but definitely not norms. So you need to have that that framework to contain these people because there is a need for chaos. A lot of people enjoy that. I don't. I like, like you, Connor, I like reading my news so I can fact check it and be calm because when I hear people, I get pretty angry and I find anger very draining. Yep. One thing I did like about this and uh, reading through it when it was talking about the sort of potential things, including, and it's talking about, you know, stronger protection for human rights and equalities, uh, workers' rights, guaranteed health care, free at the point of use, ruling out Scotland being a home for nuclear weapons. Uh, ensuring the right to adequate living standards and I did feel it quite energising and I think sometimes when you know you're in the trenches shouting about independence all the time it's hard to actually it's nice to remember like what the point it is and it's to at the end of the day have a country that reflects our values and a country that we'd all like to live in as opposed to the sort of hellscape that the UK is it seems to be uh, determined to transform into so I really did like that part. I think I actually text you about it, Kat, saying that. Like, you know, it kind of, a great reminder of what we're actually, why we support independence. It's not just because we're, we like arguing with the Tories. Um, it's to have some at the end of the process. I mean, here's another example. It's actually the, the right of the state to go to war. And the UK government can go to war just on a whim. I mean, there's there's a convention now um from iraq that they'll go to a vote in parliament but again that's another that's a convention there's no need for parliamentary approval for the uk to go to war and that's like the most profound decision you could possibly imagine the government making um and again there's no there's no requirement that that actually go through any kind of democratic process so what if johnson decided you know i'm going to deflect from partygate and i'm going to declare war on iran or something you know there's nothing to stop him from doing that and we need to have something that would stop someone like that doing that instead of just uh elevating the kids of russian oligarchs into the house of lords and then arming <laughs> ukraine <laughs> you know yeah to actually just come out yeah um here i have the text you sent me david it says it's the right approach. It gets people dreaming, imagining something better than the UK. And I think that kind of nails it. Um, and I also, so as we discussed this, Connor, I think actually this was the right time because as Labour's energy strategy is coming out and they're going wishy-washy and being all confusing, this talks about Labour workers' rights and the kind of values that Labour is supposed to espouse. It's kind of, I think it's I don't think it was intended to be a play at labor voters, but I think it speaks to a lot of labor voters who either lean towards independence or don't really give a shit. I think there are people who don't. I think what will be interesting is to see, you know, this Saturday is the SNP's, well, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but as we're speaking, this Saturday is the SNP's uh, convention on independent strategy, which is all about the route. Um, And it is kind of interesting because, you know, there is the, you're caught in that catch-22 of you. If you talk about 
what we could do as an independent country, then it's, well, you, but that's not on the table. So why are you talking about it? And then if you talk about how we're going to get there, you get accused of, well, why do we want to get there? You need to make the case for it. So I, I do understand that like the, you can't win almost doing either of these things. But yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the discussion about the constitution and what we want to see in that is shaped by how the discussion about strategy and actually getting there goes. Because the two things, they are in tandem. You know, you do have to answer both these questions at once. You have to answer why we want independence and how we're actually going to achieve it. Um, and you need to be able to answer both of those persuasively to keep it as a top of the agenda item question, which I think it has to be, because I think everything that has been happening in Britain in the last few years is like making the case for independence stronger and stronger. Um, it's just difficult to try and do both those things at the same time. Are you going to it as a journalist? I'm not going to as a journalist. I am going to be outside with other members of the Radical Independence campaign, just doing a bit of leafleting and chatting to delegates. So um, I look forward to, to that. We were thinking, you know, if the weather's nice, we might even have a picnic around the back because there's a big green space there. Um, but no, I'm not planning to actually be in there. And, and I mean, I also don't think that it's like the SNP alone uh, I mean, the SNP obviously is a really important part of the independence movement, but I'm not necessarily going to follow the strategy that the SNP adopt. I think there is a whole, there's a space in the movement for different people to have different strategies and different uh, ideas and to advance those. So um, I, I know some people are, are like, why is, why is the SNP not allowing wider grassroots movements in to play a role in that convention? And I'm kind of like, yeah, but do I, do I really want to... <laughs> I mean, like it's maybe better, healthier actually having them be two different things. The SNP can do what the SNP wants to do, um, and the movement we can talk about what we want to do as well. Definitely agree with there. I won't be there. I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit heartbroken over it because I'd like to be involved in that conversation, and I also want to see what happens. But um, hopefully, this is a series of things, and I think I, I completely agree that there should be a space for each party and each grouping to talk about what their members consent to and what their vision is. And then there should be a, a wider coming together. But you kind of have to articulate what your organization actually supports and thinks. Uh, and the my final thought on that is I've stopped thinking about why we want independence and I've started talking about why it's necessary, mm. right? This is why it's necessary. This is why it's urgent. Uh, but I think necessary is is something that gets to people because you can talk about the things we're trying to do. Um, and I have to I have to say that is something I got from Nicola Sturgeon's speech at the last conference. So and she said that somebody asked her on the street, why is it necessary? And it kind of clicked something in her brain. And it absolutely is. I was I was thinking about the everybody turning up to the big giant meeting to talk about the at the Constitutional Convention after a yes vote. And I keep imagining the Labour people walking in, looking as if the weight of the world lifted from their shoulders because they finally don't need to sort of try to straddle this divide where they're cheek to cheek with the Tories and uh, as unionists and, you know, people that believe in things that workers' rights can actually, you know, work together uh, instead of being divided by this other issue. Um, and the same... Same token, I can just imagine looking over as you see a couple of, let's not name them, but a couple of SNP folk that will just like slowly slide over towards the Tory uh, side of the debate <laughs> on things. And we can have a sort of more of a clear cut left right divide in politics again. Yeah. That'll be nice. Yeah. First person. I mean, there might be one, there might be one SNP MSP who's 
doing that shortly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sooner than independence. Were you saying that for Connell? I was just, uh, yeah, first person to the table. We're going to embed trade union rights in the constitution. It's going to be setting the cat among the feathers. Uh, a pigeons, sorry. <laughs> oh, the wildcat. You don't know this saying. What is the saying? Cat, cat amongst the pigeons. Cap or cat? Cat, cat. cat. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Thank you. <laughs> Although if you threw a cap amongst pigeons, it would probably have a similar sort of effect in the pigeons. That's like an alternative suggestion for your podcast, Cat. You could be cat amongst the pigeons, you know. <laughs> then that would make Aaron and our guest co-host the pigeons. I don't <laughs> want to do that. Although I think we should make Cap Among the Pigeons the um, <laughs> the name of the, the, the yes. episode. Yes. There we go. Definitely. From pigeons to wildcats. Scottish wildcats bred in captivity have been released into the Cairngorms National Park in a bid to save the critically endangered species. Previous research concluded the species was functionally extinct in the wild, partly due to breeding with feral cats, uh, disease and habitat loss. Biodiversity Minister Lorna Slater, who's still in post, said wildcats were a much-loved native species in Scotland, but its existence was under threat. She said reversing the dramatic losses in nature that we have seen in recent times is one of the defining challenges that our country faces. The Scottish Government remains committed to this fight and is actively working towards protecting and restoring our natural environment and the animals that rely upon it. Now, if Deborah was here, I would be going straight to her because she would love to be talking about this. Um, I actually thought about messaging her last and she wanted to record something because I'm sure she'll be she'll have a strong opinion on this. But in her absence, um, Kat, where would you like to? Kick us off. Hi. Well, I, I was saying this before we started recording. When I saw the pictures, I'm like, oh, they're so cute. So it makes more sense that they bred with feral cats because uh, when I think of a wildcat in my American brain, it's something far more threatening and large. But um, I, I think this is great. Uh, this is not an area that I'm a great expert in, but I did see that they were released in secret sites, which I thought was kind of a fun fun factoid um basically so that they're i don't know why they're doing it in secret sites but it's just to help keep people from picking them up and making them pets maybe um, tourists but this seems a big threat yeah it just seems it seems great you know i'm i i was always i'm always struck by how safe and tame this island is for like, there's no bears, there's no wolves. There's nothing that can, like when people are scared of spiders or snakes here in Scotland, I'm like, but they can't kill you if they bite you. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't quite get that. Um, Cause I come from a much wilder uh, environment, I guess. Um, so I think this is great to, you know, put these animals back in their home environment. And I don't have much other thoughts than that, I'm afraid. I didn't know Wisconsin had bears. I, I, I discovered this um, recently. Bears, bobcats, yeah, wolves. Connor, Connor. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm kind of glad that I don't have like local bears and wolves. Um, even though maybe there's a place for them somewhere. Uh, but I'm delighted with the wildcats just because I love cats. To be honest, that's uh, my main thing. I can't even, and I love to see cats roaming in the wild as well. Yeah, I'm delighted uh, about these wildcats getting released. And it's so interesting because I feel like there's so much 
conflicting information out there about the status of the Scottish wildcat and whether or not it's extinct. And I know that um, you know for decades now there have been people saying that they are functionally extinct because they've interbred too much with domestic cats. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I saw some scientists in the wake of um, this latest release of wildcats into the Cairngorms and um, pushing back against that and saying that some of that has been misinterpreted and maybe kind of cast wrongly. And um, there's also places in which the language that is used in within the scientific community can be misinterpreted. Like we'll talk about people uh, about extinctions in a localized sense because they're no longer native populations there. But you know you can actually reverse that process. Um, so yeah, I'm very, I'm very much uh, excited about this, and I love the pictures of them. And yeah, if they, it's a good thing they don't tell us where they are, because I would love to go and see some wildcats. <laughs> but I'm going to do that at, at Camperdown Wildlife Centre around the corner from me instead. Um, I'm with also all the people I've seen on social media saying that they want to feed dreamies to the wildcats. Uh, that <laughs> that would be me if uh, if I caught one, but I don't want to catch them. I wouldn't let them roam free. I interpreted functionally extinct to mean that basically there wasn't a, like unless they increase the population the way they're doing, there wouldn't be enough of them, and not only not enough maybe viable genetically, um, but not enough of them to actually meet each other instead of meeting other uh, feral cats because I think they are quite solitary and they're sort of. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the other criticism that has been used against it, which is saying that like that there's a high mortality rate among wildcats that are released. Like there's expected to be a high mortality rate, and so many people have had to explain, yeah, but like wild animals have a high mortality rate. That's just the, that's just the nature of being a wild animal. That's um, the nature of nature. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, I I really hope that we can grow the wildcat population. Um, I would I mean, love to see more wildcats. They already reintroduced, I think, beavers last year or the year before. Um, so I, I hope they keep going. I'd like them to bring back lynx and wolves. I'd maybe draw the line at bears. I'm terrified of bears, by the way. I really find bears scary. I just I have to say, the bears in Wisconsin are brown bears. They're not grizzly bears. They're, they're not... You could see one and still live... But as long not, as you're not in between it and its cub. I thought it was black bears. It's black bears and brown bears uh, are the ones that aren't like in, insane, intense, and very, very dangerous. Well, it's not that, that mnemonic that's like, if it's black, fight back. If it's brown, lay down. But I just, I've never actually lived anywhere with bears. So I don't know why I, I know that. You know the third I would part have of that? to look it up. Do you, not huh. know, do, you, do you know the third part of that, that rhyme? If it's, if it's grizzly, you're fucked. If it's white, good night. Because <laughs> you're getting a chance for a polar bear. Oh, there's Kodiak bears too, which are like grizzly and polar bear. They're terrifying. They're up, yeah, th- up, up in Canada and Alaska. I think I don't think there's that many of them. I think they're quite localized, but they're actually slightly bigger than polar bears. Yeah, they're insane. Um, okay, I'm- so black bears. Sorry. I can't even remember the difference between a black and brown bear, but the black bears are the ones that are probably think, fine. They eat I, berries. It's fine. I think it's the color. I did just run across another um, thing about the wildcats. Uh, gamekeepers don't like them because they could eat grouse and pheasant chicks. So thanks. Thanks, rich landowners. Thanks, lairds, and all you people who are too rich to worry about anything but your comfort. And so well, I mean, it makes me just happier. 
that they're Yeah, I mean, this, this dovetails quite well with what we're talking about the Constitution. It ties into what kind of Scotland do we want? Which kind of Scotland do we want to live in? Do we want to live in one that is rewilded and that is sustainable? We live in a kind of balance of nature or follow the path that the UK has put us on in the last century of or more of like a kind of ecologically barren wastelands or like preserve with the rich folk that want to go and shoot, shoot grouse and they kill off everything else and uh, uh, that could be a threat to that. Um, it's always the same, you know, objections from the same people about anything to do with wildlife or nature. And it's because they just want big empty spaces filled with as many game birds that they can sell licenses for people to shoot for four feet away or whatever it is. Um, and I, that kind of Scotland, is that's the Scotland of the past. Let's go to the Scotland of the far past that was full of forests and animals and that kind of thing. Yeah. I saw, I saw a movie. At, uh, so Dundee's got an annual horror film festival that I really like. And this year they had a movie that was like a prehistoric horror film. And it was shot in the Scottish Highlands during the pandemic. Um, but the only thing is, like, I mean, they never said it was Scotland. I mean, the, the characters, obviously, Scotland is not a concept to them. Um, but, you know, it's recognisable as the Highlands. But the only thing is, of course, tens of thousands of years ago, the Highlands didn't look like that. You know, there's they look barren and they shouldn't look barren. Um, so it kind of was a little bit of a bringing you out of it. It would have been great if they'd seen more, you know, like a bigger biodiversity of the kind that hopefully we'll have again. Um, they should have shot it in Canada. <laughs> yeah, you got lush, lush uh, environments there. Well, and you know, north of the rift, that's the same continental. Yeah, yeah, same mountains. Yep. So that's it. So when I went to Sky, it was somewhere in between the lockdowns. Like we we got out and got to do that, and I was like, it's so gorgeous. And and someone that I think was from Canada was like, oh, it's not great. You should see Canada. This is blah blah. Like, well, it's still gorgeous. Like, it is sad that it, you know. I think the timber was taken for money, uh, not to clear it out, but it, yeah, it should look a lot different than it does. It would still be just as beautiful with trees. We can't end on that. We have to. I was just going to say, I was just going to tell, tell a story about, and I was, I was actually Googling there to try and get my facts straight. When I was reading about the Wildcats and it was talking about Lynx as well. I'm sure I saw a Lynx when I was a wee boy, when I was on holiday in Mallorca. And I, I'm struggling to find out if that was normal or not, because I don't know if there was links in Mallorca. don't know if there is now or was, was then. But it was like it was like chasing a dog, and it was like substantially bigger than the dog. So as a wee boy, I was a bit freaked out with this, seeing this large cat. Um, and nobody else saw it, so sometimes I have doubted whether I, I made it up or not. You know that like every single... Uh, is, that, is that a picture of a bobcat? This is an Iberian lynx. Yeah, it didn't look like that. It was more orange. <laughs> but this is hmm. a 30-year 30, 30 memory. So every single local newspaper, I was saying to Cat before we came on, always has a story about like a big cat sighting. Um, and I remember them in Fife. And I was trying to remember the name of it. And I'm pretty sure it was the, the Beast of Balburnie. And they were saying that they thought they found... That people were seeing this big cat and they never found this big cat so nobody knows if there was a, ever a big cat um 
but there's that Twitter, there's that uh, social media account, Angry People in Local Newspapers, that always like flag up some of the most parochial bits of uh, the British local press. And uh, they have like a running thing of every time there's one of these stories, they just tweet, it was a cat, it was a normal cat. So applying that, David, you saw a normal cat in Mallorca. Well, I don't know about that. It was chasing a medium-sized dog, and it was definitely bigger than it. So <laughs> I'm sticking with my story. <laughs> these, those, those news articles, they always have a phrase as well that says, it is not known if it was uh, people are theorising that it escaped from a private collection. It's like, where do you think we are that there's like people with panthers in a private collection, you know? This, this well, isn't the Tiger King. My driving instructor went on like 15 minutes today about how panthers aren't a real thing. Um, That's true. Because it's, what is it? It's either a lynx a leopard, or, a, a, or leopard a leopard. or a jaguar. Leopard or a jaguar. If they're in South America, they're, a, they're just a jaguar with more mel- melanin. I don't know why I was speaking to him about cats in general, but he, he was, I said panther and he spent like 15 minutes while I was trying to navigate a really you know, navigate a slip road into the Kingsway. He's going, well, actually, they're not real, Connor, so don't say that again. He said that well, in his back pocket. He's been desperate to tell somebody that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like the last time I had a driving lesson. He tried to, like, I said, I mentioned I don't know how to swim, and so he started, like, telling me how to swim while I was still trying to get to grips with how to drive. You can't <laughs> swim. You can't drive. God's sake. I think panthers are real. So, actually, panthers are the genus, not the species. So, a lot of cats are panthers, but there's not... Oh, Panther. Well, I'm going to take him to task on that when I have my next lesson. I just saw it. So there's a Herald article or a headline from 2005 says, Paw print finds steps up hunt for Link or Puma. Beast of Balnerny is three times the size of a domestic cat. So I, lo- I love stuff like that. I'm going to have to find that Twitter account. You're going to have to send it to me. Oh, there was, one yeah, in, I'll do there that. was another one as well where it was like a stuffed like t- tiger or something like that. And they called they called it or the emergency service and stuff like that because somebody sighted a tiger. I remember that news story specifically because my gran had that exact stuffed tiger. So I yeah, was yeah. like, I just want to clarify, it wasn't like a dead tiger that had been stuffed. It was a cuddly toy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh man. You can always see them for sale in these sort of miscellaneous shops. They also sell like skull shaped um, ashtrays and random stuff like that and. What shops do you go to, David? Oh, you think there's I've a ever seen a skull-shaped ashtray? Like, oh, there, a... there is a shop like this in every shopping centre in Scotland. They always also <laughs> sell like cannabis, like accoutrement oh, sort yeah. of paraphernalia. There's the. Does it smell like patchouli when you walk in? Yes. Sorry. No, I don't know what that means. Patchouli. Patchouli. It's a. Patchouli. It's an essential oil, I think. Uh, hippies usually smell of patchouli in America. Well, at least I would be, be thinking of incense or something like that. Yeah. It I've is. Got, I've got to 41 without knowing what it is. So, how essential can it be? Hey, you're uh, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> is that an upbeat moment to end it on? I think so. David learned yeah. something. That's a good. Oh, yeah. Maybe this is another, another interesting thing. I saw a thing and it was talking about. Uh, boy words and girl words and of course we don't go in for that kind of gendered sort of thing but it was true I knew about maybe one in ten of the girl words and my wife knew all of them and it was like just weird things like a lot of the, the, the male words were like 
random types of like machine gun that I think I don't even know how I know that I must have known since I was about five or something like that. Like my wife did had no idea what a Bren was and things like that. Test it out, but you were in the military cat, so you'd know them all. I'm American too, so I probably That's know true. all the names. Um, yeah, I want to see this too. Uh, my son said his teacher searched P7 on, on the internet because it's their P7 levers thing. And he said, so she Googled it and it was all guns. <laughs> it was just pictures of guns. And I was like, oh yeah. So fun times. Well, Connor, you also learned that there are skull-shaped ashtray shops in every mall in Scotland. Yeah. And I, I have a suspicion where I could go in Dundee to find it. It would be in the Keeler yeah. Centre. Take a picture of it and send it to me. <laughs> I'll hunt for one for the next podcast. Right. I'll let you go because I'll Google the boy and girl word thing later and I'll send you the thing. <laughs> you can find all our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles and you can sign up for a free newsletter. You can also catch the Talking Sense podcast with Kat and Erin. And if you've got anything you want us to talk about at Hollywood Ungagged, you can tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood Ungagged, or send us an email, ungaggedleft at gmail.com, putting Hollywood Ungagged in the subject line. You can also join our Discord community. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars on whatever platform you use. Until then, have fun, be good, and be lucky. Bye. Yeah. <laughs>